This is a Broad Pods production. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. Plushcare.com slash weight loss. People say life is a journey, not a destination. But how do you know you're on the right path? If only we could see the signs when they appear. Well, I'm Amy Kwa. And I'm Jo Stanley. And on A to B, we speak to fascinating people about how they navigated their way to be here now, having profound impact on the world. We hope our conversations will help you reflect on everything you've been through to get here. The triumphs, challenges and bumps along the road. And if you haven't already, find your own map to what matters. Growing up very fearful of his, he's going to hurt my mum, he's going to hurt us, what's happening? And a lot of angst about that. The first time I tried heroin, it completely took that angst out of my gut. Just, I was settled, I was calm, I didn't have those feelings. We have such an amazing A to B today. Jane Rowe is her name and her story is just mesmerising. She's one of those people you meet, and this is what happened when I met her, you know straight away that she has a tale to tell that is absolutely going to knock your socks off. Well, she was raised in high society England, already unhooked. She worked for Richard Branson. Double hook. Yes, and somehow ended up starting the Mirabelle Foundation here in Australia. Mirabelle is celebrating its 25th year supporting orphaned or abandoned children who find themselves in the care of extended family due to parental illicit drug use. It's a beautiful organisation. And it's just a fascinating road that got her to a place of profound purpose working with Mirabelle, a road with many twists and many, many turns. And as always, Mimi, surprises around every corner. Jane Rowe, it is so exciting to have you with us on A to B today to just excavate your incredible history and all of the amazing things that you are doing today with the Mirabelle Foundation. Welcome to our program. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Now, we were just talking about what gets you out of bed in the morning, and you said English breakfast tea. PG tips, English tea is what gets me out of bed in the morning. And then that made me think, where did that come from? In your childhood, in your teenagedom? When did Uh, you start drinking that tea? As early as, well, I can't remember when I started drinking it. But I'm from England, and so you always kick the day off with tea. And I remember as a child, actually, my parents had, I don't know if you had them here, the teas made by the bed. 
And no. It, what, by the bed. It's, it's called a tease maid, spelled M-A-I-D, I think. Yes. It would be a little machine with an alarm clock, and then you'd set the alarm, and when the alarm went off, the water had boiled and the teapot <laughs> was there. <laughs> And you would start. So I would always remember as a child, I would hear the alarm go and go, oh, mommy and daddy are awake. And they'd be there and they'd be pouring the hot water into the pot of tea. So so, so that you could have tea in bed yes. first thing. This is a true dedication to tea. It, it is. Absolutely. I'm, I doubt they're still available, but I can remember it vividly. So I always associate waking up in the morning with a cup of tea. And I still do that, but I don't have a tea's made. I do get up and put the kettle on. You it's very it interesting how much our, we talk, A to B is about the journey that makes us who we are and all the jigsaw pieces, really. And what we eat and drink is so indicative of the family we came from, yes. isn't it? Yes. You, for you being English and that memory of your family. And you talk a lot in everything I've read about you, Jane, about the loving family you came from. Yes, there was a lot of love. A lot of dysfunction, but hey, an awful lot of love. And um, that's, I think, what gives us the resilience in life is having that love. Mm. So that tea memory is something that's bubbled up first thing in our conversation. But then when did you go to boarding school? Because that's something that I feel must have been very instrumental in your upbringing. Mm. So coming from obviously a very supportive, loving yet, as you say, dysfunctional family, what age did you get sent to boarding school? 13, 12, 13, I went to boarding school. And did you see that as a, a privilege and a joy or did you see that as sort of being shunted no. off? No, I didn't see it as being shunted off at all. It was just that's the way it's going to be. We lived in a um, you know, in a village and I was very privileged. My life was very privileged, but it was just a given that you would go to boarding school for, you know, from 12, 13. I had friends who, um, particularly boys later in life, they were sent to boarding school at seven. Mm. I've heard four. <sighs> you know, babies. Babies. I know. And, uh, and given Mirabelle is about children who have been separated mm. from their family, you know, the trauma surely is the same. Absolutely, that separation and just unbelievable. I mean, I think things are very different now. We're talking about 60 years ago when, you know, it was kind of the norm. But I remember vividly, you know, being dropped off at school. I can remember that feeling in my stomach and that real acute, painful homesickness. Did you take the tea made with you? No, didn't take the tea made with me. We'd have to get up and, you know, walk so far and have breakfast and and just, it's a real physical sort of pain, that yearning. But then, you know, it would ease a little bit, you know, in the week and then you would just be counting the days till, you know, your parents would come and visit you. Wow. But as you say, it was a very common conventional thing to do in that demographic that you grew up in, in England. Princess Anne went to the same boarding school as you, I have read. Did you meet her? Were you? No, I, I didn't meet her. She left, I think, the year before I I was there. But um, yeah, so I didn't actually meet her, but our paths did cross in various ways after was that. Was that sort of a um, like a legacy of privilege and royalty at schools like that in England? Yes, there was. And the reason she 
went to the school I went to was because you girls were allowed. Oh, this sounds so privileged, doesn't it? Girls were allowed to have their own horses there. So that was why it was chosen for her because she was and continues to be, you know, a very good um, into horses, whatever. I wasn't into horses at all, but I still went to that school. But that was why that school was chosen for her. Can you describe for us how does it shape you growing up in, as you describe, privilege like that? I think looking back now, it really equips you to be able to deal with any situation, stand on your feet, get on with everyone, blend in, assert yourself if you have to. I think it gives very good survival skills, although I think it can equally break a lot of people as well. That's being at the boarding school and separated in that way. Yeah, Mm. absolutely. I can imagine that for some you thrive and for some you disappear. Yeah. And I think you learn to manage your own pain and uncomfortability, perhaps. You you know, you become restrained. You, it's, you just learn how to get on with it and not cause too much fuss. Mm. But what about the privilege, having that kind of, were you aware that you had wealth around you or does that shape you? Um, not at the time. I suppose I took it for granted. When I was a child, I, I was certainly felt very privileged as a little girl. And But I think it's like so much in life. I didn't appreciate what I had till I didn't have it. <laughs> and then it was, I can't believe, you know, used to do this, do that, never think twice. And suddenly I haven't got that. And then you think, wow, how exclusive and fortunate was my upbringing and the opportunities that came with it. And when was the point that you realised you didn't have that? I think much later in life when I was married, I was in Australia, my marriage broke up, I had two young children and the reality was, I've got to get a job. It, It was everything that my life hadn't taught me in a way I never actually thought I'd have to work. I mean, I thought I'd have to work, and women do work really hard being a mum, but I thought that was my role. And suddenly there there was nothing to fall back on. Um, but you did initially have a job, didn't you? I had... Pre-children, pre-marriage. So tell yes. us about that. In England, definitely. I always worked, but it was... Um, you know, I wasn't reliant on my wage, but always worked. And that was a given. It was like boarding school. I guess you will go to boarding school, you will then leave home, you will go and live in London, you will work and you'll go to secretarial college or whatever. So all those things I did do. So I went to secretarial college in London and I was very rarely there because I was too busy having a good time. I would be off Amsterdam for the weekend, having a lot of newfound freedom. And then when it came to leave, they apparently I went down as the only person leaving Secretarial College where her typing was faster than her shorthand. So I was basically unemployable. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And a friend of mine at the time said, um, oh, you know, my cousin is starting... um, a new business working with this guy and it's in the music industry and they're looking for staff and I'm sure you could get a job there. So she organised for me to go and meet these people and I was asked at that interview, I wasn't asked about my typing, I was asked my name and my star sign 
And being Jane and being an Aquarius got me the job. And it was <laughs> Richard Branson setting up Virgin Records. So that was so my he, first job. Did he interview you? Yeah, there were a couple. Yeah, he and one other person. It was in this warehouse in Portobello Road. It was a very informal sort of interview. And I got the job. So, I mean, you know how funny that the actual month you were born is why you're here That's today. Amazing. Why you well, I think I probably I could have been leaving and got the job. Who knows? <laughs> but it was a very, very, you know, informal interview. And it's like, yep, that's fine. You've got the job. Wow. And what was the job? In those days, they used to have, um, we started with a mail order company of albums, records. So there'd be an, an office of us girls and we would get the money orders would come in and with what albums they wanted. So you would type up the label and it might be, you know, Grateful Dead, Import or whatever, type them all up and then you would take them to the other side of the warehouse where the guys would be there with shelves and they'd get posted out. And, you know, it was in the um, New Musical Express. Every music paper every week had the Virgin Mail order list. That's really how he started his company. Wow. Do you know, my, to give you some insight, it wasn't that era necessarily, but my husband grew up in a very small country town in Australia and the only way he could get access to music was to mail away for it. Yeah. And as a teenager, isolated, not many friends, it was a lifeline for him. And I imagine that's the kind of people you were sending totally. music to. Totally. How important music is to our lives, to connection. Absolutely. And there were new releases and a huge selection and, yeah, totally. I love that, intersecting with people's lives where you don't even know what impact you're having. Yeah, really. the connection that you're making. And also to be working for a visionary yeah. so young and you didn't know it. Having no idea. That's right. An absolute visionary. Could you see? Like, was he inspiring? Yes. he was. Uh, Nick Powell was the other partner at that time. They were just so ahead of their time. Again, you take it for granted at the time, don't you? You kind of think, wow, this is cool. This is great. And I think the way he treated people, he treated people well. It was more than just the entrepreneurship. I think it was the interaction with people and his whole personality or the whole small team's personality. Is that what you learned from him? Yes, I think through osmosis, but without it being conscious at all, I think I learned a huge amount. I think I learned a huge amount from my father as well. General kindness, treat people well. Mm. And then where did that initial job for Richard Branson or with his company lead you in the music industry? <laughs> well, I don't know. It didn't lead me that far in the music <laughs> industry as such. Well, I worked there for some years and then uh, that closed and he opened the first sort of record hyper supermarket in Oxford Street and I got offered a job, but I actually didn't want to work in a shop as such. But by that point, my life was pretty out of control because they'd signed up the Sex Pistols to Virgin Punk was happening. So they were a label by now rather than just a yeah, mail order uh, warehouse. Absolutely. I sort of came in at the um, tail end at my Oldfield Tubular Bells, mm -hmm. which really put Virgin on the map. And then he signed up the Sex Pistols. No one else would touch them. And I was still working there. And I ended up just, you know, in addiction, basically, partying way too much and just having... Well, a great time in the 70s, but um, yeah, a fairly scary time if you look at it now. 
What was the entree to that world, though? Were you invited to a party? What was the moment that actually allowed you to enter that world? I was mixing with people anyway outside of that, friends of friends. There was, you know, we were always at festivals and music was a huge influence in our life. So we were always at a festival or Finsbury Park and, you know, we were taking acid, we were smoking dope. We were just really, really enjoying, you know, our freedom and experimenting with a lot of things. And then the working at Virgin just complemented that because a lot of musicians and then obviously with Sex Pistols and that era, you know, we would just try any different drug. Life was for partying, no breaks. So you were having an awesome time, but... At what point did you kind of realise, oh, gosh, this recreational fun that I'm having is now an addiction? After I'd left Virgin, so I was no longer there, and that was when heroin took a much stronger grip on me. And I I was still working, surprisingly enough. I was working for um, a publisher at that point, but realising, you know, I couldn't get through a day unless I had heroin. I, I was absolutely in the grips of addiction, still managing to function in one way and hiding it from my family. But it was slowly, I was slipping downhill. How old were you then? 1920. Mm-hmm. Oh my gosh. So when did you start working with Richard Branson, if you're well, only 19 or 20? Well, yeah, and I would have started That's... when I was 19, so maybe 21, wow. 22 then. Yeah. I was, it's yeah, experimenting, but my life was still quite in control. Although I remember him asking me if I was all right one time, which was very sweet. I went, yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> so he'd obviously seen, was a little bit concerned. But, I'm, you know, one could blend in quite well with all the say, people imagine, I was working with. I imagine Richard's seen a bit of that <laughs> in yeah. his Rock and life. And <laughs> yeah. And it was very small, the company then, mm. as well. But it certainly got really out of control soon after I left. So do you think that point for many people with addiction and including yourself, is it that point of going from it being a social recreational use of drugs, any drug, and in your case it was heroin at this point, to it becoming very clandestine and you're doing it on your own and, as you say, you can't get through a day? Is there like mm. a tipping point where you can look back and you're like, oh, that's that's the day or that's the time or, or is def- it not that? Yeah, I think you have a nagging feeling and you know. It's a bit like going on a diet. You know, you have um, a really big meal or you go, I'm going to go on a diet. And then you have a really big meal and you go, yeah, I'll go on the diet tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And I think it's the same with drugs of addiction. You think, yeah, it's a bit of a problem. I'll have a bit more now. I'll give up tomorrow. And then I think it's those times when you realise, actually, I can't. You know, you have the best intention to give up and you can't. You were so young. How did you give up? How did I give up? Well, there were a few attempts to give up. Coming to Australia saved my life, ultimately. But I got into quite a bit of trouble and then I had to go and live back home. I think in those days it was... My bail conditions were that uh, I wasn't allowed in London except for therapy. I don't know how they would have said, oh, there she is. (laughs) She's obviously going to therapy. (laughs) (laughs) So when you say your bail conditions, Mm. so you were arrested. Yeah, a few times. And the bail condition was, you know, I had to go home and live with my mum 
And so arrested only... for use, for drug use? Yeah. Or, and, right. Yeah. Two or three times mm-hmm. there were a couple of, yeah, court cases looming. And during that time I connected or I was this amazing Indian doctor that worked in London. I was put on methadone and I would see her once a week. And she was just a pioneer. She, she was incredible. And I have to go and see her in, in her basement for um, checking with her every week and she would organise whatever I needed for the week. And there was something about her attitude that was so incredible. That was my first big step to recovery. There, there were quite a few. But the way she treated me, and she didn't treat me as special and this is up to you if you want it. It was what I needed. It was a very loving kick up the bum, really. So she was really your sliding door moment into a new life. Without a doubt. Yeah, her approach to it was absolutely the first sort of sliding door moment. And then my brother took me to Italy skiing for a week. He went, oh, Janie, you know, you're doing really well. Let's go away for a week. So we went skiing for a week. And while I was there, I met an Australian guy who was working there. And we got on really well and I had to go back to England. He was working there for three months. He said, oh, you, you know, you should come back. I went, yeah, yeah, maybe, maybe. I went back to England and started going downhill again really fast So I got in touch with him. I said, I'm going to come back over. And I can remember it happened very, very quickly. I sold my stereo. I got a one-way ticket to Italy and I took myself there. So were you in love with him? Yeah, yeah. who became your husband? I mean, we spent probably two, three days together. I mean, I was only there for a week and I met him maybe on the second to last night. But we really engaged and sort of kept in touch and then... It was through meeting him that was a huge sliding door moment that gave me somewhere to get out of England fast. And then I went and worked over there with him for the last two months. I worked in um, a little hotel over there. We got a little apartment together there. And then... Do you think there are any coincidences in your story? Do you think that it's by chance that you met him or do you think it was really meant to be? Who knows? But there was something about just being taken from that environment in London that was really dangerous for you. Totally. I mean, whether it was by chance or just incredible good fortune, Mm. who knows? Was it meant to be? Yes, it was. I mean, you know, several people don't get those opportunities, but for me it was an absolute sliding door moment. And we went back to England and then his father, I wanted to travel, I wanted to go South America, I wasn't going to settle anywhere and his, his father wasn't well, so he had to come back. And I remember him mentioning that to my father, who said, take Janie with you. She's going to die if she stays in London. I'll pay for her ticket. Wow. And I was like, well, I'll come to Australia for a week, but then I'm going on to South America. For your father to have had that insight into your condition and how Mm. you were faring and that you really desperately needed Mm. to move away from all of these influences. That's amazing. Yeah. And I'd been in quite a bit of trouble and I'd been in clinics. I mean, they didn't have clinics in those days when we're talking a long time ago. So I was put in a clinic initially 
which was really more for probably wealthy women alcoholics. And I can remember that vividly. And I went there and they gave me an injection and they put me to sleep for five days. Mm, wow. And then it was, wake up now, you've been a very bad girl, you're cured, off you go. So not, and I, I really want to ask you about addiction, <laughs> because they're not amazing. treating the cause of the, the emotion, addiction. None of it. You were just really a very naughty, You just sedated shameful, and then your yeah. body Put will go sleep. through the detox yeah. Yeah. and that's it. So yeah. because this is this is where, um, and we will obviously speak at length about Mirabelle, this extraordinary organisation that you founded, the societal conversation around addiction often saddens and angers me because I think it's often from a basis of no kindness or understanding, but also the stigma comes from shame and not understanding people are dulling a pain. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Yeah, you're escaping from something. Yeah. So what for you was the cause of the addiction? I think one of it is probably just our disposition personality. It's the same thing. You can get a family of three, four, five siblings and one will become addicted and... I think I was all, I was always told as a child, oh, you're just too sensitive. Oh, you're so sensitive. So I think there's an element of that. And as a child, my, my father was, um, he was really an alcoholic, a very functional one and a very loving man and whatever. But we know memory is very unreliable. But my first memory is sort of standing up in my cot crying, hearing him going mad with anger downstairs. So I think there was a lot of that as a child, that um, relative trauma for me, growing up very fearful of he's, he's going to hurt my mum, he's going to hurt us, what's happening? And a lot of angst about that. And then that just, you get layer upon layer of that. But I would say that's definitely where it came from. So... For me, certainly, recreational drugs for fun. But the first time I tried heroin, it completely took that angst out of my gut. Just I was settled. I was calm. I didn't have those feelings. That is so powerful to hear you say that because I just think there's a lack of willingness to understand someone who has an addiction because we all go, well, I can handle this. I've gone yeah. through worse. Why, you know, she came from a loving family. You know, she's just weak. That really, mm. there's just, an, as you say, everyone is different mm. and everyone has their own way of processing what they've gone through. And that constant angst in your, in your gut. And ugh. also trying to reconcile this man, your father, who you were to some degree conditioned to be afraid of, but who also loved you mm. very much and then was there for you at the point where you were trying to pull yourself out of this addiction. So that even in itself mm. is a very complex thing to be able to process. Absolutely. And secrets. Yeah. You know, we were, what went on in our home stayed in our home. And, you know, and I work with kids now, as you know, and it's about bursting the secrets. I, I think shame, blame and secrets are three things that, oh. They're poison. They're poison. Yeah. So you came to Australia and did it save your life? Yes, 100% it saved my life. So I came here with a small overnight bag, um, thinking I'm not going to stay long because I'm going to keep travelling. And here I am 42, 43 <laughs> years later. 
And I went straight from punk London. I'd had that time um, in the mountains. But basically, I came straight from punk London to a massive sheep station in the Western District. Wow, what a contrast. (laughs) What were you thinking? I, I remember arriving here and driving and going, wow, where am I? What's happening? But it was the best thing for me. So um, we lived there for some months. We got married within the year, moved to Melbourne. I didn't, I didn't know anyone. So I could also redefine myself because... Yeah, reinvent yourself completely. No one was, you know, I had no one saying, oh, are you really okay? You're still using drugs. So you can, it's liberating. I mean, it's lonely as well because you've got no old friends sharing your past, but it's liberating. So you escape the shame. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. You talk of shame, and I know that you have worked with Brene Brown, who has just been instrumental in the conversation around shame. Can you speak to us about shame? Because we all live with it. How can we manage it? How do we process it? How do we? Well, read one of Brene's books, oh, I'd it's say. unbelievable. Yeah. Because I, th- I think it affects all of us to d- different things, and I think it takes quite a bit of work to go through, but we need to shift it. It's like guilt and shame, what negative, punitive emotions are they? And I I think they're also interlinked with so many other emotions and anxiety. But I think the shame we feel and the shame we carry, and then you can, you know, end up taking something to lessen that shame, whether it's alcohol addiction, because shame just consumes you. Mm. And with shame comes the blame and that responsibility. And yeah, they're very, very, very powerful emotions that I don't think we should, we need to carry, we need to revisit them and not be anxious about revisiting. Because often actually the anxiety about it is much worse the real thing. And whether you read one of her books or you have counseling or therapy, when we revisit it, it's like, actually, yeah, I wasn't that bad or that wasn't that bad. Or you're not alone. Everyone, we all think we're the only ones who have done this terrible thing. Yeah. And also (sighs) for you, you, you removed yourself from that environment where shame had been first cultivated in you. But not everybody can remove themselves from that's their right. environment. And so that's why it's so 
important, the work that you're doing, because you are helping people to sit with the Mm. emotion and creating frameworks to support people to stay within, you know, their culture, their extended families with the Mirabelle Foundation and supporting them to live with that shame and work through it. Absolutely. And, you know, I was so fortunate because I had privilege, I had love. It's so much easier to work through all those things when we have that. But if you don't have any of those resources and you're surviving, you're trying just to survive day by day Mm. and perhaps no education, it is um, really, really hard. And yes, I, I work with children and their trauma, their loss is unbelievable. But then that's compounded with the shame or the blame of it's my fault mummy died. And children take on the blame anyway. I mean, you know, children of divorced parents will think, was it me? Let alone if you think you could have prevented mum or dad dying. They feel so responsible. Mm. Yeah. I think we all do as children to just keep things together and want things and everybody else to be okay. I hope I'm not going off on a tangent. I've got a lovely... This is one of my... We love tangents. We're mad for tangents. <laughs> I just think this epitomises. It's one of my favourite stories with a Mirabelle young girl we were working with. And we do... Um, we work with different age groups after school. Um, this young girl, she's grown up and she wouldn't mind me using her name, Lily, was um, at a um, one of these girls' groups and her um, her mum had died tragically, and she was being raised by a family member. And her dad had been in prison for a long time. And like all young kids, they they can't wait for the parent to get out of prison. And her memory, her childhood memories were of unbelievable domestic violence, and that she was probably the cause of it, and no happy memories. But with dad coming out of prison, that was going to make it okay. So one week she goes, yeah, dad's coming out, you know, this week. So when I see you next week, he'll be out of prison and he's coming straight to see me. And this is a, you know, a quite a frequent story. Dad comes out of prison and on his way to go and see Lily, he'll stop for one hit. And he died. He overdosed because he hadn't, his tolerance was so down. So he never made it to see Lily. She was obviously absolutely devastated. And she said to one of the Mirabelle team, we've got um, a small bag of dad's possessions and I'm scared of opening them. Will you come home with me and will you go through them with me? And Kayleen said, yeah, of course I will. So they went back home and there were, there were only, you know, a handful of items. And she opened one and there was, um, it was a, a book and written in the book which the dad had written to Lily's mum, was saying, I love you so much, you've made me the happiest in the world, and I cannot believe we are going to have a child, and this is the most wonderful thing that could have happened to us. And Lily read it, and she started crying, and Kayleen hugged her, and she said, no, Kayleen, they're tears of happiness, because now I know I was loved and they loved one another. So that is the power power. of love and the shame and blame, just reading those words. 
lifted. Yeah, mm-hmm. just ebbed away. Wow, that is just such a an amazing story and I know that an equally amazing story is the one around how you founded Mirabelle and, and why you did. Yes, yeah, so um, I'd, um, I was working as a drug counsellor because going back to the beginning when suddenly I had to find a job and I didn't have any qualifications, I thought the only thing I'm qualified to do is actually work with people with addiction. You're like, my shorthand's not great. My shorthand's not great. That's exactly (laughs) right. Well, I I love people uh, and I worked as a drug counsellor for many years and 25 years or so ago, because Mirabelle's been going 25 years, I don't know, I'm sure you may be well too young to remember, but the heroin was very strong and on the front page of the paper every day would be the heroin fatality rate that was overtaking the road fatality and there were warnings everywhere. And my role at that point, I was working at Windana, which is an amazing rehab, still still um, going, so there'd be a waiting list. And people needed a bed. When people are in crisis, they need help now. So they would come in and see me every week and go, Jane, how far away till we can come? And I go, I'm so sorry. It's still going to be another two, three weeks. And one particular day, four people I knew came in. I said, I'm so sorry. There are still no beds. And there were two young women. They had children. And they said, well, we're sick of this. We're all going to go out and get stoned tonight. You know, it's been weeks. I said, well, I can't obviously stop you doing that. But if you're going to do that, you've got to stay together as a group because the people that are dying and overdosing are those people that are using by themselves. Stay together in a group. They all went out. They all got heroin. They all passed out and two woke up and two didn't. And the two who didn't were young mums with children. So... I remember going to work the next day and being told that these two beautiful women had died. And I actually kind of felt redundant in my role at that point. I thought, until there are more services supporting people, how can we stop young people needlessly dying? And I went to the funeral of one of the young mums, and I'd got to know her six-year-old little boy pretty well. And he was at the funeral with emergency care workers because, you know, mum's drug use had so fragmented the family, she'd had no contact with her biological family for years. They didn't even know that she had a child. And he's sitting there by himself with a worker sort of on each side. And as they lowered mum's coffin, he went running up, going, where are you putting my mummy? And he was taken away with these workers. And he had lost all love since of belonging in that moment. And because he had no family, his future was going to be he would be put in emergency care and then move from home to home until a permanent home could be found. He'd lost all sense of belonging history at that moment. And without a doubt, he was going to be far more likely to use drugs later for that acute pain and that feeling of bereavement or attempt suicide. And it was that image. So lay awake one night thinking, we've got to do something about, no one thinks about the children. Everyone has a stereotype of a drug user being down and out in the street. Addiction doesn't discriminate. So again, it's the shame and blame from society. That's right. So I thought, well, we need to, you know, raise awareness in the media. So 
when people start reading about someone tragically overdosing, perhaps the next thought will be, I wonder if they have children. I wonder if their children are okay. So it was um, a very small idea. And I know a lot of musicians and wonderful, generous, hearted people. I said, do you think we could do a benefit gig just to raise awareness on the children that get left behind? It's not about saying any one of us have our lives together. It's not about drug laws or anything. This is about the children. And they all said yes. And we ended up having a two-night Who's Who concert. But in that time, between the idea and the concert happening, we'd done research and we established Mirabal because we found there is no service. And let's start providing a service for the kids that get left behind. So it was a small idea and it's kept growing for 25 years. I, you know, I ran it from home for the first 18 months, but there's such a need for that that it's been a very organic process. I never started going, right, we're going to build a big not-for-profit, whatever. It's like, where are we needed? What doesn't exist? Let's make a difference to one, two, a thousand, five thousand children's lives if we can. It's so incredible that hearing your story, it just sounds as though everything that came before in your life has just led you to this purpose helping others and, you know, helping survivors of, of parents with addiction and and their extended families. It's just incredible. You're helping, you know, through mentoring programs, but you're also, fascinatingly to me, you're helping newborn babies. Yes. Well, we did originally, I mean, it's very independent now, but in the very early years, wonderful woman who was a nurse and she was the one that actually set this program up. But we realised that, you know, babies that are born addicted cry a lot. They're very agitated and nursing staff don't have the time to hold them. And often they were young mums that didn't stay in the hospital. They were in crisis themselves. And babies can die from not being touched. Or we definitely know that Touching babies in the beginning, it forms the brain's pathways. It's very, very critical. And then you look at the other end, and old people can die from not being touched. They're lonely. So we devised this program, a cuddle a baby program, which was started at the Royal Women's, where um, older people in the community come in, and they're just there to hold the babies. They're not there to do anything else. They're just there to hold the babies. And that program, I think, is national now. It's absolutely taken off. But yes, we started that, or Rosalie Vacari, who worked with us, that was her thing. And she worked for months and months to get the whole thing happening. And it's so simple. I mean, it's such a simple thing that can be so life-changing. So um, life-changing. People, you know, in the later years of their life with a newborn baby. Yeah. What better pairing That's right. could you have? Yeah, and both just benefiting enormously from that, just general kindness. But a lot of what Mirabelle does is stepping in where the surfaces aren't there, like sort of a safety net for those that fall through the cracks, in particular perhaps the grandparents, the aunts, the uncles who are now carers of these kids who don't get a lot of support. No. And don't know their rights. Absolutely. And that was when we first did our research, you know, as to where we didn't want to duplicate an organisation. So let's really look at where we can be, you know, the most powerful. 
And that's when we found out that if you're what they call a kinship carer, so a blood relative, extended family, you're not eligible for government support. I mean, there are ways around it now, but it is not clear cut at all. And, you know, a very common scenario, you know. What, a government department doesn't make it easy? <laughs> no. Is it, I, I know you <laughs> find it hard. It's surprising. You, you think I'm fibbing, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> um, so we do a lot of sort of lobbying and advocacy because actually kinship care is overtaken foster care now. Because obviously if you look at mental health issues and drug use and they're so interlinked and family, but we are still you know, fighting to get equitable support for grandparents. And, you know, when I first started working at Mirabel, it was, you know, I'd worked with, you know, people in the grips of addiction and, you know, it was so different. I would then, you know, get a call from a grandparent. And the classic scenario is, you know, knock on the front door. You know, there might be a policeman saying, you know, your daughter tragically died. Last night, here are your three, four, five grandchildren. Will you take them? Yes, I will. Having no idea that she actually wouldn't get any support for that. And we would get a call. So we would go and visit in in the home. And she might not even have a washing machine. And you've got a, you know, a baby there. Because that generation of very proud are not used to asking for things, which is why we would go to the home. So I go, look, no, I'm okay. I just want a bit of advice. And, you know, there's poor as a church mouse trying to feed. And children that are traumatised. And, and then with the grandparents, you know, their friends drift away because suddenly you're back there looking after kids or having to be at a kindergarten. I mean, you know, we've worked with kids that have been dropped off at kindergarten and never picked up. And... So, you know, the abandonment issues for the children, and we don't say where a child should be placed. That's not up to us. But if it's, you know, appropriate, keeping siblings together, keeping families together has to be the very best option. So, yes, we will do whatever it takes to keep that family together and support them all. And tell us about a, um, you know, because we're talking about some very heavy, real circumstances, but is there, you know, at the end of the rainbow, have there been some beautiful stories of kids coming through oh. your support care, coming back, oh, helping so others? So many. many. <laughs> oh, so my, so many. Oh, I was with this amazing young woman last week. I had to do a fundraising event and she's up there talking with me. We have got young people working at Mirabal. We have got young people volunteering at Mirabal. And that's what's so powerful because they will, we've got, you know, young adults now running those kids groups that they used to be part of. And we all know there's nothing as powerful as talking to someone who's walked in our shoes. So for these young kids to see these young adults now, to be able to go, I was just like you. Oh, that is so powerful. And for the grandparents too, it is so encouraging, encouraging for them to see these empowered, amazing young people. And it gives them so much hope too. Wow, you know, you've got to this point. So every day, There are wonderful stories, wonderful achievements. We've got, you know, young women, professional soccer now, scholarships. Oh, yeah. Amazing. It is extraordinary. And you know what I I see? And and Mimi, you you know, you you connected 
all of the things that have led you, Jane, to this moment. And I feel like I see you as a baby in that cot and you, through time, are healing her by healing these babies that you're working with now. Oh, that's beautiful, Joyce. I hadn't, I'd never actually thought of that, but thank you. Yeah, you really have, you know, you've found a way to stop some very negative, harmful cycles and create new beautiful cycles within your community at the Mirabelle Foundation. It's really profoundly beautiful. We're just so, so grateful to have you here with us. And I'm going to segue now after our little positive note from you into our origin story. So every episode, we have an origin story, which is loosely related to our guests. So I was thinking about the Mirabelle Foundation and all of the work that you do. I was thinking about you going to boarding school when you were a girl. So I'm going to now take you back to the 25th of September, 1850. None of us were there then, don't worry, but just imagine, (laughs) imagine... Thanks for the clarification. I was going to sound not that old. (laughs) So the intention is this is an origin story of something very well known. And, you know, it's a lovely lesson to just go, oh, wow, you know, whoever imagines that from such a little thing a big thing can grow. Yes, and you don't have to guess what it is. I'm just going to take you on a little journey. So it's the 25th of September 1850 and a little baby girl, Mary Alice Smith, is born near Liberty in Union Country, Indiana, where she lived on a small farm with her parents. But by the time she was 10, her father was in prison and her mother had died. And so little Mary Alice was considered to be an orphan and it was an orphan with a T at the end because orphan is the old word for orphan. And so orphan is now obsolete. That's just a little bit of an origin story okay. of a word. Thanks. <laughs> anyway, Mary went into care with her uncle, extended family, where she worked alongside his family to earn her board. And in the evening, she would tell stories to the younger children, including her cousin, who was called James Riley. And she was treated as part of the family and they nicknamed her Allie. Now, 35 years later, James Riley, the little boy to whom Allie read bedtime stories, wrote a poem about Allie called The Elf Child. But then he changed the poem's name to Little Orphan Allie. But then there was a typesetting error and in publication, the poem changed to Little Orphan Annie. And so the comic strip was inspired and then the movies and then the Broadway show. And Allie herself didn't actually learn that she was the inspiration for any of this until 1910 when she visited her cousin who wrote the poem. And by then she was 60 years old. Oh, that amazing. I love that. Yeah, so little orphan Annie came from Allie and there was a typesetting error. Mm, so you just you know never that. know. And was mm. that meant to be? Who well, <laughs> I mean, people's lives inspire so many things like literature and music and, you know, all that. But the fact that she was seen, like she told this story and he remembered you and your experience and took that into what he wrote. That's lovely. It's, and it's all interconnected. Mm. And I think with your story, Jane, you know, as you said, Joe, the little baby crying in the cot to what you're doing now, like that story is extraordinary. And we don't often see all of the links in our stories until later. Like, you know, 
Ali was 60 when she realised that her own story had inspired this comic strip, which later, and she wouldn't have known then, went on to, you know, be a household name. Mm. I don't know the story of Little Orphan Annie, though, do you? Annie. Oh, it's Annie. Annie. Oh, it's actual yeah. Annie. Annie. Oh, my, oh my gosh. God. It's Annie. literally my favourite yeah. ever it's musical. the musical, yeah. the movies. Oh, I love that Oh, sorry, so I wasn't much. clear enough. No, I didn't know. I didn't. I, my mum used to say, you look like Little Orphan yeah, Annie when I was growing girl. up, but I didn't connect that with Annie the yes. musical. so Little the Orphan. The sun will come out <laughs> tomorrow. <laughs> I yeah, know that. So Little Orphan Annie <laughs> I didn't was, know. A, was a poem. Well, first it was a girl called Alice, Mary Alice, who then was nicknamed Ally, then it was a poem, then it was a comic strip, then it was a movie, and then it was a musical. Mm. Or maybe it was a musical then a movie. I don't know. But well, anyway. it still plays regularly, doesn't it? It yeah. does. Oh, I love that movie And now too. we know the origin. Yeah. Wow, I love that. Music, it sparked my interest when you were talking about music. And it did bring it back to music too. Yeah. It had well, everything in it. Well, that's it, Jane. I wonder, <laughs> you know, music was such a huge part of your life. Is there a song or a, you know, a line in a song? that you remember from that time that perhaps has shaped you a bit? If you want to get to heaven, you need to raise a bit of hell. (laughs) Oh, brilliant. Brilliant. And I bet you have come up against some opposition in Mirabelle and you've just raised hell. You need to be, you need to disrupt, don't we, to get things changed. Not always, but we need to, yeah, be able to disrupt if we want to shake things up and improve things. So, Jane, at the end of every chat on A to B, we like to ask, what is your sense of being? What is your B? You know, you've arrived in your purpose. What is it to be in your purpose with the Mirabelle Foundation? And as Jane wrote, just be kind. Simple, isn't it? It's simple. I remember the, you know, my mum who I adored, she'd always say, darling, just be kind. And I think... Ultimately, we all just need to be kind. Thank you, Jane. Thank you for your kindness being with us here today. We've loved it. Absolute pleasure. A treat. Thank you for having me. Wow, Jane is just breathtaking, isn't she? Yeah, she's so amazing, Jo. And if you would like to support Mirabelle Foundation, just head to mirabellefoundation.org.au. I know that it would mean a lot to Jane and the young people that they support. And as always, we say thanks for listening. Check out the other great episodes in this series and also Series 1. Do not forget Series 1. Mimi, do you have a favourite? They are all my favourite, of course. Joe, of course. But if you're going to put me on the spot and I have to choose one, I'm going to say Amy Wang, scriptwriter for Crazy Rich Asians 2. She has so many amazing stories. She had me at Gwyneth Paltrow. But actually, her journey from A to B is so much more than the glamour of Hollywood. Just wait till you check out her story. If you'd like to leave us a review... That would be super helpful. We would love that. And also follow us at A to B Podcast. And also, if you want to check out the show notes for this episode and all the others, go to broadradio.com.au forward slash A to B Podcast. And finally, if you are interested in radio for women by women, hit that subscribe button on broadradio.com.au to stay in touch with our growth. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.